Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. Hope you're enjoying your weekend. I'm super excited to answer some questions. Sorry, I'm a little late. I don't know if you saw in the chat, I was waiting for dinner <laughs> to be delivered. Monday through Friday, I've got a gal that does all my cooking, but fortunately in the weekends, I've got to fend for myself. So life's tough, right? Actually, I don't fend for myself. I have my assistant order the food for me, but I have to go through the chore of going down through the elevator to actually pick up the food uh, that's being delivered. So life's rough. <laughs> But anyway, let's get into your question. Actually, before we do, I've got some fantastic news for everyone. Got a big announcement. I'm going to shoot over to Rebel Capitalist Live. We've got our speakers. You guys know Orlando, May 12th through the 14th. And I think I said this last week, but we've got my good buddy Mike Maloney going to be there. It's going to be his first Rebel Capitalist Live. Super excited about that. Got Lynn Alden, Barnes, Kenny McElroy. Chris McIntosh, Hartman, Robert Helms going to be the MC, and Simon Black from Sovereign. Now, I've got a couple other people lined up. Obviously, we're going to have 12 or 13 speakers there. But, fortunately, his picture's not up here yet. But last week, we confirmed another good buddy of mine. You're all going to love it. Mr. Peter Schiff is going to be at the next Rebel Capitalist Live. So, if you're a big Peter Schiff fan or you want to see Peter debate someone, maybe on the dollar, maybe on Bitcoin, going to definitely have to get your tickets ASAP. Now, and rumor has it, now this isn't totally confirmed, but rumor has it, he may be coming with his son, Spencer, and we could be doing something with Spencer and Peter, because although I'm sure they have a similar worldview, there is one topic where they do not see eye to eye. So maybe, just maybe, just maybe, we might have some sort of debate <laughs> regarding that. But anyway, guys, I'm super excited because Peter's on board. Everyone loves Peter. And uh, it's going to be his first Rebel Capitalist Live as well. So just an incredible lineup. And you can get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. Let's dive into your questions. Let's see what we got for this evening. If Amazon not turning a profit for the first time since 2014 isn't a red flag, I don't know what is. Okay, more of a comment. <laughs> I don't know if that's a question, but yeah, I think you could say Amazon is a proxy or one of the proxy, pretty good proxy for the overall economy as far as aggregate demand on the consumer side. And I didn't know that this is the first time they haven't turned a profit, but if they haven't, yeah, I mean, the main thing that would come to my mind or the first thing that would come to my mind is the bullwhip effect. I don't know if you guys saw the whiteboard video I did where I was discussing this at great length. But in 2019 or 2020, prior to the Cervasa sickness, Amazon had about 800,000 employees. Fast forward to the end of 2022, and they had 1.6 million. 1.6. Now, I get it. Everyone's going online. They're the largest retailer. Consumer spending has made a big change. But doubling your workforce in, in basically two years as a result of a lot of aggregate demand that was just a sugar rush from all the stimmy checks, PPP, mortgage forbearance, don't have to pay your student loan, 
etc. And it's not like these people at Amazon were neck deep in macroeconomics. They just see all this additional demand and they think it's going to last forever. So I'm not saying that they would not have hired additional people if it weren't for the fiscal sugar rush. But I am saying they most likely would not have hired 800,000 people. Let's just assume that they would have hired 300,000. Okay, now you're at 1.1 million. That's You've still got 500,000 employees too many. So it doesn't surprise me at all with that kind of overhead from a standpoint of your payroll, they're not turning a profit. So what do they have to do? They have to fire people, fire more people, fire more people. And if they're a proxy, I think it's only a matter of time before you see other companies, not just in the, I don't know if you want to call them tech, but not just uh, companies on the NASDAQ, but even your mom, mom and pa restaurant or barbershop, dry cleaner, having to do the same thing. And I think it'll sneak up on people. One of the things I'm always amazed by is how the market sucks in as many people as it possibly can and then rips their head off. It's almost like the market is a live entity that just desires to crush as many investors as possible. So when, you know, call it a month, two months ago, everyone was on the, the recession bandwagon, including me. You guys know that. I've been talking about that since the yield curve inverted, but I didn't know when the, the timing, but everybody, even in the mainstream media was talking about that. And then you just got that sick feeling in your stomach. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about, where you believe there's going to be a recession, but now you turn on the TV and everyone agrees with you. And all the people that you really don't like are agreeing with you. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing. And I, I was right there with you. And I think probably what I wasn't seeing is when everyone was on that side of the boat, the recession side of the boat, you're, you're not likely going to have a recession or it's not going to show up in the numbers until everyone gets back over onto the, there's no way we're going to have a recession boat so or side of the boat. So you look at Friday's jobs numbers that are just completely blowout numbers. They're expecting like 187 and they got like 564, uh, some close to that. I don't know what it was right off the top of my head. So I think that's kind of the first step. And I would assume that over the next two or three months or maybe the next month or two, we're going to be getting a lot more kind of quote unquote good news and the Fed's going to continue. It's going to make them raise another 25 or who knows if they get to five or if they stay at 4.75, which was kind of the high water mark for the two year, which is significant. But I think we're going to need to get some more, as much good news as we need to, to get everyone from in the mainstream media, from the recession side of the boat onto there's no way in heck we're going to have a recession. And then that's when the market says, aha, I see a rug. I'm going to go ahead and pull it out <laughs> as fast as I possibly can. And that's probably what the yield curve has been predicting. The timing of this, who knows? I, I mean, I've been talking about this for nine months since the two-year inverted with the 10-year. And then you got the one-year inverted, then the six-month inverted, then the three-month, then the one-month, then reverse repo inverted with the 10-year. Now you've got Fed funds at what 4.5% and you've got the 10-year trading at 3.5. And every single time the Fed raises rates, what does the 10-year do? Nada, <laughs> if not go down. So it, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to buy the bond market being wrong, but yet it's also hard for me to buy that we're going to have a recession when everyone thinks we're going to have a recession. So two or three months ago, when I was kind of getting this wrong, if you want to say that. I thought, you know, the bond market is just so powerful. 
maybe this time it's a little different when everyone's on the recession side of the boat will actually have one. But no, oh, I was wrong. Absolutely not. I think that is one of the number one indicators, one number one tools that you have to add to your bag of tricks when it comes to investing is just no matter how much you got to hold your nose because you know we're going to have a, a recession or you know whatever your fundamentals are telling you, sometimes you've got to just say, because everyone's on this side of the boat, I've got to just you know stay in dry powder or I understand that this is going to happen, but it's not going to happen in the near future, even though I think it will, even though every single bone in my body is telling me that we should be having a recession right now. If everyone else is it, I, I've, I've, I've got to be wrong. Now, every once in a while, everyone's going to be on the right side of the boat, but I think it, it, that's going to be rare. Let's just say one out of 10 times. And if you make those types of investments, or if you make investments around that, you're, I think you're going to be right a lot more than you're wrong. But yeah, it goes back to Amazon. I mean, we see just Amazon, we see Google, we see Facebook, we see all of these companies that are layoff here, layoff, 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 layoff. And all of a sudden, the jobs numbers are 500,000 when they're expecting 150. And you're sitting there scratching your head and then the household shows an additional like 84,000 compared to the, the, the headline number. So I don't know. I don't know. That, that's just kind of my thinking over the weekend is we're, we're most likely going to get a few, maybe a month or two more of, of quote unquote good news before the, the market, Mr. Market is, is comfortable enough. thinks he's going to create enough investor pain to go ahead and rip that rug right out from under one, everyone. And that's when you get the uh, acknowledgement of the recession, which will most likely have to come with a significant increase in the unemployment rate. Do you know Spanish before moving to Columbia? And did you feel you need to know Spanish to move there or could you get by without it for a period of time? Well, I started spending a lot of time in Colombia in 2014, 2015. And so let's just say it's 2015. That's been seven years, eight years. And I do not know Spanish. <laughs> you think... I mean, it's pathetic. It's it's embarrassing to admit because Spanish isn't that tough. If I just took like three or four classes a week for two months, three months, I mean, I'd, I'd be very conversational. That said, if I have to tell a taxi how to go somewhere or order off of a menu at a restaurant or check into a hotel, I can do that easily. No problem. And when people are talking, I can get the gist of, of what they're saying. But I can't, I mean, there's no way I could have like a, just a normal conversation with someone without sounding like I, my vocabulary had like 20 words, which it basically does. <laughs> I think that should answer your question. I've, I've been here. I've been very successful here. However, in, in whatever term you want to measure success, I think from a personal level, I love it here. My life's great. Um, from an investing standpoint, I have been successful here as well. I did a TV show for heaven's sakes, where I was the director, the executive producer, and I was actually in the TV show and still didn't speak Spanish. We just used subtitles. And uh, even that went well. And it was on a local station. It was called Telemedellin. It was just before I started the YouTube channel. The TV show was called Vida en Remodelación. So the remodeling life. And that's where in 
we were just or the the camera crew the, the show was following angie joaquin who husband and wife team architect and designer they manage all my real estate stuff here and now angie still is my property manager and uh and then yours truly just going around from the three or four projects that i had just like an hgtv show that you'd see in the united states but i produced it in fact i pitched it so that goes to show you kind of the attitude that i think you have to have as an entrepreneur i know a lot of people ask me what book to read and all this stuff i don't know i i never read a, an entrepreneur's book it's just you've got to have that mentality where i've never produced a tv show in my life i don't know the first thing about it i don't speak spanish but yet I thought, hey, this would be a good idea, and I'm going to do it. And I set up an appointment with the local TV station and went down there and pitched them on how they should give me a primetime spot Sunday night for my TV show. And they said, have you ever produced a TV show before? I said, nope. Have you ever directed it? Nope. Have you, have you even been on a set of a TV show? Nope. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be in the TV show. Do you speak Spanish? Nope. But I can promise you it's going to be a great show. <laughs> so. You get my point. How many people would have done that or how many people would have just not even tried because they've been like, there's no way, there's no way I can do it. There's no way, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. But I think that in itself is a good example of what makes a good entrepreneur. Not that I'm great. And trust me, well, I guess I did kind of have that attitude from the beginning. I was going to say that's something that I kind of learned, but nah, I, I didn't really just learn that. It's just uh Having that ambition and that unjustifiable confidence in your own ability for what it's worth. What do you think about Columbian Bank's CDs at 16.5? I, I, I wouldn't take any peso investment that wouldn't appreciate with the rate or didn't have a possibility of going up in nominal terms with the rate of inflation. So if you're buying a bond, you're you're basically just buying pesos. You're just buying pesos at 16.5%. Okay, that's not an inflation hedge. Now, you're true. If inflation stays under 16.5%, that's fine. But if it gets above that, 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 that's no hedge. Where if you had a rental property and you were getting, let's say, 15% or even 12%, I'd much rather have that because that, that, that underlying asset, there's a chance, a very, very good chance that that goes up in nominal terms with the rate of inflation. So you're not losing any purchasing power on that principle. I would never, ever, ever want to invest in a bond. I mean, I know a lot of people are really good at it and they make a lot of money, but I'm, I'm not that good. And I, I don't, I'm not that sophisticated of an investor. I definitely haven't taken the time to research emerging market debt. So I like to just keep it simple, stupid, the old KISS strategy. And for me, that means if you're going into an emerging market, buying some, if you, if you want to buy an asset, buy an asset. It can actually go up with the rate of inflation and be an inflation hedge. So dividend paying stocks, real estate, I would not go down the path of buying bonds just for the reason I went over. How did you find the real estate market in Dubai for investing? The best piece of advice I can give you, probably my main takeaway, actually my two main takeaways, very bullish on Dubai, extremely bullish. Because not only is it a melting pot, but it seems right now like it's the only place in the world that is actually attracting and not trying to repel entrepreneurs and investors 
Now you could say, well, George, most of them are coming to the States. Okay. Yeah. But the States trying to repel them. The, the States is trying to demonize them. Dubai is doing the opposite of that. And you just see a lot of energy there. You can feel it. I, I think it's very similar to not exactly, but similar to the United States back in, let's say the 1800s when there was no safety net, but everyone knew that that's where they could come at very low taxes, relatively free market. And obviously Dubai isn't perfect on any stretch of the imagination. Another thing that I, I like, believe it or not, I mean, it's, sounds weird saying this, but in today's day and age, the world is so volatile and it's so tumultuous that I, I'm, I'm actually a little leery of democracy. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it just, th- there's such a push towards people wanting stuff for free and, and people being tribal to the point of insanity. And I think when people go off the deep end in that environment, democracy doesn't work perfectly. My good buddy, Doug Casey said, or has said many times, it's like mob rule dressed up in a suit and tie. I'm not saying that we should, that's not the best system. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying it's got its flaws. And in times, you know, at the end of a fourth turning, when you just see this massive tribalism, we've done away with religion and we've replaced it with politics and people aren't, they're not listening to reason. I mean, if, if you thought people were listening to reason, just let's remember 2020, enough said, right? So we're in that environment that's just a, it's a dumpster fire, really. And people are just trying to, people feel like they've lost hope. And people have this victim mentality in the West. And when they have that, and you got democracy, boy, that's, in my opinion, it's going to be rough. So look at Dubai. They got a king and that dude, it's, he's there. <laughs> now that can be, that can go horribly, horribly wrong as you all know, but can also lead to stability. So assuming, and this is a big assumption that the current king continues what his grandfather started and what his father started, and then continues with that tradition of kind of this philosophy that Dubai has had, then I think it could be kind of a beacon of stability, although far, far, far from perfect in a world that's completely unstable and getting more and more unstable by the day. Lastly, if you are, if you want to entertain buying an apartment there or buying a property, you've got to figure out how to buy something that they can't build more of. See, one thing they've they've got going for them is they have limitless land. They're not going to run out of sand or areas to build in Dubai. I mean, I, I, I guess to a certain degree, they could hit their borders, but they got a long way to go. So it's very hard for real estate to appreciate in value above and beyond the rate of inflation when there's no restriction on supply. Because if there's just more demand, builders can build that. They got a bit of a margin. And then they're just going to complete, they're going to continue to build housing stock. Very similar to what we've seen in Houston back when we had a more, more of a free market compared to what you would see in a San Francisco. So a lot, you know, a lot of people think that, oh my gosh, San Francisco, all the prices are high because the incomes are high. Not really. I mean, if you go back, especially prior to 2007, the incomes were actually very similar, Houston, San Francisco, but yet Houston, the property values were a fraction. Why? Because you didn't, 
there wasn't anything really artificially limiting supply there. And so Dubai is like Houston, nothing limiting supply. So what you have to do if you want to buy a property, you have to buy a property that they can't recreate. As an example, they've got the marina there, which is just a fantastic area. I'm not saying that they can't put in another marina. Maybe they can, but assuming they can't put in this type of marina for whatever reason, that would be where I would look. Because regardless of how much they build out and up, they're still not going to be able to build another marina. Now, I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying, I'm just using that as an example, assuming that they couldn't. So you've got to have that boots on the ground knowledge and understanding, okay, which properties are not only unique, but which properties has something attached to them, has some sort of benefit, has some sort of unique characteristic that can't be replicated. Then I would consider it. But if you're just going in there and buying some random apartment just because you think you got a good deal on it, I, I wouldn't, that wouldn't interest me at all. Do you think there will be another time for individuals to finance their way into a solid real estate portfolio? I've been patiently waiting to buy back in. Sure. Real estate cyclical and it mean reverts. So it'll mean revert back to where we were in 2012. Maybe not in nominal terms, but in real terms. Well, I shouldn't say it will. The probability is extremely, extremely high. So I sent out a tweet today, just kind of refuting someone that was trying to throw me under the bus for things they had no clue what they were talking about. And uh, people were asking me about, hey, would you, because I, I mentioned that I'd sold all my United States real estate back in, I can't remember, it was 2018 or 2019 when I sold my last property, but it was, it was right around then. So people ask me, oh, George, would you ever go back in? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I would love to go back in and buy some U.S. real estate. I might not buy it on margin. I might not use 30 or 50. I, I don't know. Because back in 2012, I bought everything in cash. And I tried to take out a line of credit, which was almost impossible. And then I was thinking about doing a long-term deal, 30 or fixed, which I think is was very smart. Never pulled the trigger on it for a variety of different reasons. But the bottom line is, is if prices in the United States went back to where they were in 2012, in real terms, a lot of people say, oh, George, that's never going to happen. You're crazy. Prices are never going back down that far. Okay, in real terms, guys, we could have nominal prices stay flat. If we have inflation, let's say 5%, 8%, compound that after four or five years, guess what? you're real darn close to where we were in 2012. <laughs> so if that happens or when, sure, it will happen sometime. Listen, I'm going to be chomping at the bit. And I'll obviously share that with you guys. Just like, you know, people call me a perma bear all the time. And I think that's, they have a valid point because most of what I do on my channel is pointing out some of the, the cracks in the system which I think is an important role because there's so many cheerleaders like CNBC and Jim Cramer out there that are just always saying, bye, 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 bye. So I think for there to be a YouTube channel that has a contrasting view, I think that's helpful. I think that's beneficial. But I don't make this stuff up. I mean, I just call it the way I see it. I'm not making videos saying, hey, there's this big flaw in the system just because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's going to get a lot of views. No, this is, I, I just didn't, Insider secret, I make, how I choose my video topics is just simply what I'm thinking about at the time. It's just what I'm thinking about in my head. So if I make a video on the bullwhip effect, 
that's because over the weekend or whatever, I was thinking about, hey, how does the how does the bullwhip effect impact the, the economy? What's going on there? Or the other day I did a whiteboard video on the, the car market, like Carmageddon, if you want to call it that. And why? I didn't sit there and do all this research and say, oh my gosh, this is trending on Google. I'm going to go ahead and... No, it's just I listened to a podcast that weekend when I was out at the golf course with on Wealthion, my good buddy Adam Taggart, where he interviewed this car guy. And I'm like, wow, they've got some fantastic points. So I started thinking about that, pulling up charts. Like, hey, I'm going to do a whiteboard video on this. So anyway, anyway, uh, that that's kind of the, the genesis of most of those whiteboard videos. So uh, my point is a lot of times people call me a perma bear, but if you go back to like the Cerveza sickness, you'll see that I switched in March or April of 2020. Go back when you get a little time and watch some of those videos and you'll see me say, whoa, things are actually getting pretty cheap here. In fact, I'm going to set up a watch list and I might start buying this. In fact, I remember vividly in one of the steps, I can't remember what the video's name was, but in one of the steps, I went over how Carnival Cruise Line, and this is before Portnoy, Carnival Cruise Line, I was like, wow, this is like insanely cheap. I said, I might, this might be interesting. I might put this on a watch list. And that's when I was talking about oil and I was talking about coal and uranium and a lot of these things on the buy side, not like, oh my gosh, this is in a bubble. This is in a bubble. So why? Because that's what I was thinking about at that time. It's just things are rarely cheap. And if things are expensive, a lot more than they're cheap, I'm going to be talking about things how expensive a, a lot more often. <laughs> so just some insider info there. But yeah, bottom line is if they went back and if I could get them cheap, I'd love to buy some more rental properties in the United States. What is the difference between a Federal Reserve debt note and outright plantation style slavery? Slavery? I, I think you're probably into Bitcoin and you're saying that, that fiat is slavery. So where, where they're going with that is because we have a fiat system, we're always going to be in, in a perpetual state of inflation. And if we're in a perpetual state of inflation, since wages usually lag the rate of inflation, your purchasing power over time is going to decrease and decrease and decrease. It's why we've seen back in the 1950s, 60s, how one income could support a family easily. And now, well, 92 incomes can for the average Joe and Jane. Also, the only way to get ahead in that type of environment is to speculate. You have to buy stocks, you have to buy GameStop, you have to buy Tesla, you have to buy whatever. And that's the only way to get ahead because you can't get ahead in your normal job because your wages aren't keeping up with the rate of inflation. And because we have this fiat system, it creates this perpetual inevitable inflation, which is why when you look at a chart, you can see the dollar has lost 98% of its value since 1913. And therefore, fiat equals slavery. It, it makes you a slave to this fiat system. Or if we didn't have this fiat system, we wouldn't have inflation. And if we didn't have inflation, if we had actual productivity, which created deflation, then you wouldn't have to speculate. You wouldn't have to take all this risk. You wouldn't have to buy or you'll be a house flipper or whatever just to get ahead because your wages 
instead of losing value, would actually be increasing in purchasing power, assuming that your wages stayed the same, or you actually had nominal wage increases. Because price is going down, wages going up, purchasing power goes up. And this is very similar to what we saw in the 1800s, where from 1870 to 1900, roughly, we had about 45%, 45% deflation. Prices went down by almost 50% in the last 30, 35 years of the 1800s. And you might say, well, George, well, that's terrible. Because if, if prices were going down, oh my gosh, people must have been out of work and we must have had this massive economic depression. And no, actually, no. Wages, and I'm not talking about real wages, I'm talking about nominal wages, went up, up, not down. So think about how that increased the purchasing power of the average Joe and Jane. So I don't, I just wanted to set up your question. So I think people most likely see where you're coming from. And I apologize if this isn't where you're coming from, but I've just seen this terminology used so often that uh, 99 out of 100 times, this is, this is the premise. So what is the difference between a Federal Reserve debt note? So basically a Federal Reserve note, basically a bank note issued by the Fed. I guess, again, I have to read into your question just to answer it. I guess what you're asking me is how do we get out of the system with a fiat system? How can we eliminate slavery? I, I think I'd ask you, Greg, in a system of sound money, how do you eliminate slavery if the majority of the population wants a significant degree of government spending as a percentage of GDP? So and I, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because I don't even know if that's what you're asking. But uh, I think the way I'd answer this question, I'd encourage you, instead of asking the question, what is the difference between a Federal Reserve note and outright plantation-style slavery? I think you would be better served to try to answer the question, what is the difference between an increasing amount of government spending as a percentage of GDP and outright communism? Because what you're at the heart of what you're trying to ask, and again, I completely apologize if I'm putting words in your mouth, but at the heart of what you're trying to ask is inflation. It's, it's consumer price inflation and perpetual, consistent consumer price inflation. But what this assumes is that we always have that or always would have that under a fiat system. Why? Because the money supply increases. And if the money supply increases, then you're going to have inflation. But if we go back to that time in the 1800s that I was referring to, where we had 45% deflation, M2 money supply went up by 400%. 400%. And we had 45% deflation. Compare that to 1990 to 2020, when we had roughly 125% inflation, and M2 money supply went up by 400%. The exact same. The exact same. So I'm not saying that fiat is good. I think it's very desirable to have sound money. But I'm saying the increase in money supply doesn't necessarily, and sometimes it can, but it doesn't necessarily tell you a lot about the rate of consumer price inflation. What is, in my research, what's far more significant is the rate of increase relative to real GDP. Because if the economy is creating enough goods and services, where all this lending that's being created, which is increasing money supply, 
is going to productive lending, then you're not going to see consumer price inflation. You're going to see all of that deflation that we saw in the 1800s when we have fractional reserve banking and the M2 money supply went up by 400%. So the secret there, the key, I think, is real GDP. Then what's real GDP about? Well, it cuts government spending as a percentage of GDP. Because think about this. Let's take it to an extreme. If, if, if you had 100% of the government spending producing 100% of economic output, or if economic output was 100% a result of government spending, how efficient do you think that economy would be? Do you think they'd be producing a lot of goods and services? Probably not. We've seen that movie before with like communist Russia. Now let's go back to the 1800s and assume that government spending. And I know this is a flawed metric. I get it. I understand that's not perfect. And GDP back then was different. And M2 is a very vague number in the CPI. It's, it's, it's understated. But if your argument is the CPI is understated, by the way, if, it's, uh, if you corrected for the right CPI from 90 to 2020, it just makes my point even more powerful or just adds to what I'm saying. It doesn't detract from it because real GDP would go down, right? But regardless, these are the key components that I think you need to look at if you're really trying to solve the problem for inflation. Because you could say, okay, well, inflation is slavery, fiat is inflation, but that implies that fiat M2 money supply grows a lot more with fiat. And let's remember that from 90 to 2020, it grew by 400% when we are on a strict fiat standard but yet it grew by the exact same amount from 1870 to 1900 when we were on a strict gold standard. So listen, again, I'm, I think it's desirable to have sound money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that we're not going to have an increase in M2 if that's what consumers want. And you say, well, we have full reserve. Why didn't we have full reserve back then? And it gets to this weird point where if you're a libertarian, especially, uh, you would say, all right, well, if we go into a sound money standard, let's say, uh, if the free market chose fractional reserve banking like it did back then, you'd ha literally have to have the state, ironically enough, come in and say, no, that's illegal. You can only do full reserve because we need to fix money supply. So it's kind of weird there. But anyway, my main point, and I don't know, I'm going about this a roundabout way, and I apologize, but if that is what you're trying to get at, I, I would, I think your, your mental bandwidth would be better allocated to instead of focusing on fiat and slavery, focusing on government spending as a percentage of GDP and communism, which I guess you could say is almost slavery. Hey guys, I want to remind you to get your tickets to Rebel Capitalist Live. This is the live conference I do twice per year with all of your favorite speakers from the Rebel Capitalist Show and experts in investing, commodities, real estate, freedom, and liberty. All of your favorite topics, all of your favorite speakers. The next Rebel Capitalist Live is going to be in Miami and tickets increase in price as we get closer to the event. So go to rebelcapitalistlive.com right now to get your tickets to the next Rebel Capitalist Live. It's the conference you cannot afford to miss. It'll help you increase your financial freedom and more importantly, your personal freedom. You'll get intel that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Past speakers have included icons in macroeconomics, investing, and personal freedom and liberty. People like Dr. Ron Paul, Robert Kiyosaki, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, Jeff Snyder, Richard Werner, Mark Moss, Lynette Zhang, and Robert Breedlove, just to name a few. So once again, go to Rebel Capitalist Live right now and get your tickets today. Is my base case still a severe recession with corresponding asset deflation? And bonds, the most attractive asset? Well, let me be very, very clear. I, I like T-bills. I, I would not buy 10-year, 30-year, although I think if you're really trying to speculate, that might be a decent speculation, but I wouldn't do it. Not with my money. I just like T-bills because I think it's a good place to park dry powder. So I do think that we're going to have a, a severe recession. But like I said at the beginning of the live stream, I don't know that... It's going to happen tomorrow. I think we just have to see more and more good news before the rug pull. But I do think we're going to get the, the rug pull. How do I think World War III could impact home prices and USD COP? Well, I'm assuming you're talking about home prices in the United States. I mean, I don't know how it could, I don't know how it could increase prices, but I would have said that about a global pandemic as well. I think it really depends on how involved the actual United States is. I mean, this is like World War II when we're pretty much fighting battles on on in other places. Maybe, I mean, if they're doing a lot of stimulus and they're doing, who knows, right? When the government comes in and distorts the market to that degree, which again is kind of goes back to what I was saying before, it's, you know, fiat's not great, but the, the real problem there is, is government spending. And even if, I don't want to go off on a tangent again, but even if the argument is, well, the fiat allows the government to spend, no, no, no. You got to do more more homework there. So you got to look at the the Fed's balance sheet, and you you've got to look at the balance sheet of the federal government, and you're going to see that there's very, 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 very low correlation, especially when you look at the amount of reserves in the system. But anyway, back to your your question here. If the the hot war was in the United States, I mean, we're talking about like something that looked like the 1800s in the Civil War. Oh my gosh, I can't even fathom. Honestly, I can't even, it's hard for me to even go there because obviously I'm an American and yeah, you're just talking about Mad Max and I mean, heaven forbid. I mean, I think even if you're an atheist, you got to pray that never, ever happens. And we got to do everything in our power to make sure that we are avoiding that scenario. And I'm not talking about, oh, well, it's great to fight a war as long as it's not in the United States. No, I'm just talking about war in general, World War III in general. I don't care where it's being fought. Looking over at the USD, uh, I, I can't imagine that the USD versus the peso wouldn't explode higher because, I mean, the, USD is like the ultimate risk off. And I, I can't imagine how that wouldn't be possibly the biggest risk-off event of our lifetime. What's crazy is commodity prices could skyrocket as well. I'd have to really think that through. Now, I don't have to think about USD versus COP. That's a no-brainer. The, 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 the peso would get crushed. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, right now we're at, what, 4,500? I think you're looking at 6,000. I mean, you're, you're looking at the DXY at 120, I think maybe minimum. But I do think in that environment, you could see, I know I've gone off on a, a mental tangent here, but I do think you could see commodity prices go up, actually. 
while it's very counterintuitive with the dollar screaming just due to the supply side. But I, I but I'd have to think that through. Bottom line is is I think USD would rip against every currency. Have I ever watched Aswath Damodaran's talk on smart versus dumb money? No. Why hasn't the Fed sold off more of the balance sheet? Can they manipulate stock bond prices with QT? No. This kind of goes back to the whole slavery question. And I, I don't really have time to explain it fully, and it gets very esoteric, but I'd really encourage people to think about the monetary solar system. 99.99999% of people out there, even super smart market participants, believe the Federal Reserve is the sun in that solar system. And the banking system is just the earth revolving around the Federal Reserve sun. That, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. The Fed is actually the earth. And the sun is the commercial banking system. They are the center of the monetary solar system. So the Fed really, it, it can do things. And obviously, as a result of doing quantitative easing, as an example, in 2020, we had M2 go up significantly. But there was a lot of other factors at play, such as people drawing off a credit line, which would go back to the banking system. But usually, usually in normal times, the, the, the Fed is, I would argue, almost irrelevant. You say, well, George, well, they can manage how many reserves are in the system and they can expand the balance sheet capacity of the banks. And if they're doing QE, it, it adds all this liquidity. And if they're doing QT, it takes out all this liquidity. Oh, no. you, you've got to understand, you've got to start with the premise that there is nothing, nothing constraining the bank's balance sheet. Zero, except for counterparty risk. I think there's a good argument, a decent argument for regulation, but I still would say that they're going to be 10 steps ahead of the regulators at all times. So if the banks want to create liquidity, they're going to create liquidity. They don't need the Fed for that. If they want to buy stocks or buy bonds, if the market wants it, they're going to do it. You got to think about it this way. Imagine you're a hedge fund. And you've got all these treasuries on your balance sheet. But you go into a meeting on a Monday morning. And you say, you know what? I, I would really like to start buying stocks. I think it's risk on and stocks are a good place to be. Are you going to sit there and say, oh, my gosh, you know what? I'd love to buy these stocks. But unfortunately, I can't because I've got all these stupid treasuries. So what we're going to have to do is we're just going to have to wait for the Fed to do another round of quantitative easing. So they can buy all these treasuries from us. And then once the Fed buys all these treasuries, then thank goodness, we're going to have the liquidity we need to now go in and buy all these stocks that we really want to buy right now. See, when I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But for some reason, we think this is the way the system works. So go back to that hedge fund. If they want to buy stocks right now, what are they going to do? Well, number one, they're going to sell the treasuries. But even if they don't want to sell the treasuries, they're just going to put them out in repo and get the cash. They're just going to use them as collateral. You say, George, but we're looking at the system in aggregate total. The Fed controls how much cash is in the system, therefore liquidity. So they, even if they go into repo, they're going to have to borrow it from someone else that has cash as a result of the Fed. No. No. Again, that assumes that the banks are somehow constrained. And they're not. If they want to provide that liquidity in repo, they're going to do it. Why? 
because they can create dollars, infinite dollars. The only thing that constrains them is if they think they're going to get paid back or if there's a risk reward. They can create dollar assets. They can create dollar liabilities. They don't have to settle on the Fed's balance sheet. They don't need bank reserves to settle. They can settle between themselves. And, and this is very, very, very complex. And it's, it's tough to get your head around because it's so wildly counterintuitive. And it flies in the face of everything that, that we are taught from day one. But if you start with that premise, you can answer a lot of these questions on your own. So let's go back to it here. Why hasn't the Fed sold off more of the balance sheet? Well, I mean, I think they're just letting things roll off their balance sheet. They're just allowing things to mature. And I think they they understand how important the collateral is. So they're making sure that they're, um, if anything's rolling off, you know, it's mostly mortgage-backed securities. I, I would assume that's what they're doing. But I, I, I mean, I don't know specifically why they haven't allowed more of it. Now, can they manipulate stock and bond markets with QT? Mechanically, no. So let me answer your question directly. Mechanically, no. Psychologically, yes. That's the key. That is the key. And there I would agree with you that psychologically, now all of a sudden, all the players in the market that actually can create liquidity and do all these things with their balance sheet, now all of a sudden they're like, woo, risk on. I'm going to lend, 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 lend. I'm going to create all these dollars, bam, bam, bam. Not because they have more bank reserves or fewer bank reserves or whatever. It's simply because they're like, aha, the Fed is doing X, Y, Z. Therefore, they're giving me this signal that if I take way too much risk and I'm systemically important, they're going to bail me out. So why wouldn't you take on, that's the moral hazard. The the problem with the Fed isn't that they're facilitating liquidity or quote unquote money creation. That's not the, the problem with the Fed. And it is a massive problem is that they manipulate the price of money at the front end of the curve, not really the long end, because then you say, George, well, if they got interest rates artificially low, that's going to increase the money supply because banks are going to lend more because there's going to be more demand. Not really. Let's go back to QE 1, 2, and 3. When they wanted to lower the long end of the curve by doing QE, what happened along into the curve? Yields went up, not down. The opposite of what the Fed wanted because they don't really control that long end of the curve. So the, the bottom line there is that the, the, the from a psychological standpoint, or I'm sorry, the, the two cardinal sins is one, micromanaging the price of money at the front end of the curve. But I don't really think that applies to liquidity nor dollars being created to, a, to a, a significant degree. And then number two, bailouts. Bailouts, bailouts, bailouts. Bailouts create the moral hazard. Bailouts, I think it goes right back to long-term capital management. And this is a, a thought experiment that I've done many, many times where I think, okay, if they never would have bailed out long-term capital management, if they never would have bailed out the uh, systemically important banks or whatever, the GSIBs during 2008, if they if they would just let people fail, let the free market work, but yet they also did QE, would that have done anything to the stock market? I, obviously, there's no way of telling certain for certain, but my base case is no. QE wouldn't have done a thing. It would have been just like Japan. I think the power of QE... Had, it has nothing to do with mechanics, everything to do with psychology, because it's them signaling to the market that, hey, you can take way, way, way more risk because if you do fail, we're going to bail you out. And, and, and so anyway, 
I've got to shoot off to another live stream, guys. So I can't do shout outs. I apologize. Uh, awesome questions, as always. I'd uh, encourage you, like I conclude with every video, to stand up for free market capitalism, freedom, liberty, and uh, check out rebelcapitalistlive.com for more speakers. Get your tickets as soon as you can. Look forward to seeing you in Orlando, May 12th through the 14th. And I'll see you in the next video. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out the Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to the George Gammon YouTube channel.